all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Good morning and thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us. I'm Dr. Susan Botrus. I'm a professor of pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and I, I want to talk today and follow up to what some of what Lieutenant Governor Hoseman was talking about in in legal terms. Early brain development is something that I don't think our population, our policymakers, in in general, um, we all quite understand how important it is and how vital it is and how important for us to take care of our young children. So my question to you is, do you, do you think that we pay enough attention to our young children? You know, I was listening. There are legislative hearings going on right now, led by Senator Nicole Boyd and others, who are looking into what's going on in the arena of early childhood, early brain development, in the area of education, in the area of health, in the area of early intervention, and um, how much money we're spending, and are we spending enough? Well, I can tell you from my work and my experience in early child development over the last 40 years, Um, No, we're not. We're not paying enough attention. And I am very heartened that we have lawmakers right now who are interested in perhaps making some changes. One of the things that I've done over the last five years is work very intensively in the area of children birth to five. And I want to just give you some some information that will help you understand why I feel so passionate about this and why I really want you listeners to understand that, yes, everybody, everybody in our state's important, the young and the old, but the very young right now are truly, I know it sounds trite, but it is, they really, it's the truth. They really are our future. And one issue that we have lost had in Mississippi is not recognizing that, yes, indeed, it is the parents' responsibility to raise their children, but some parents don't have the background, the training, the history, 
the finances, the resources to do it alone. And in fact, even those who have all of that that I just mentioned shouldn't and and often don't do it alone. They do it with other people around them. Those who have can afford to have more people around them. Those who have not often are working alone and trying to raise their children alone. So let me give you some facts. Um, First of all, a child's brain at birth weighs about three-quarters of a pound. By three years of age, it is tripled in weight. It's over two pounds, near two and a half pounds. And by the time a child is four, four years old, their brain is almost to the adult size. Did you know that? The other thing that is going on in that young child's brain is brain connections. During the first few years of life, more than a million new neural connections, the, the connection of the neurons in the brain, form every second. More than one million every second. So if a child is not per- properly nourished, properly stimulated, given the proper love and attention, then what happens to all of that? It's often the pathways aren't set appropriately. Often the connections don't happen appropriately. Often the brain does not grow as it should. Okay. And so if you look, there have been studies that have have been done looking at what happens to a child who doesn't have his or her needs satisfied. For example, if a child is abused or neglected, or if there's a death of a parent, or if there's mental illness in the family, or if there is substance abuse going on or violence in the family, all of that affects what's happening to the child's brain, the way pathways are laid down, and the way a child ends up. So if you look, and and I would encourage those of you who can, go online and look at brain scans of children. Just Google or do whatever search engine you use and, and look up brain scans of children who were neglected versus brain scans of children who are typically developing who who were appropriately stimulated. And what you will see is that in especially the PET scans, the colorful scans that you see, you'll see a lot of black, a lot of dark in the area of children who were neglected, in the areas of emotion and other areas. So in, in a scan of a child who's appropriately stimulated, often they're reds and greens and yellows. And in a child who was not well stimulated, there are dark areas all over the brain. That tells you something, right? There's not brain activity going on in those areas. 
And that is a tragedy that happens all too often. It happens in our state. You know, a lot of the early studies were done in orphanages in Romania, but but what we know is that it happens in our state. And we know um, that there are numerous children under the care of Child Protective Services. And if only we had perhaps intervened earlier, we may have been able to make a difference earlier and perhaps been able to save that child um, and help them become a productive citizen. So I'd love to hear from you, um, listeners, about what your thoughts are. What do you think we need to do differently? You can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. One thing we know is that perhaps we're not spending enough money on our young children. Um, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman mentioned pre-K collaboratives. And, and I don't know, listeners, if you know what those are, but there are several in the state. And as he's mentioned, it, the number has grown. Um, I think we're up to uh, near 23 to 25 pre-K collaboratives. And what those are are um, four-year-old pre-kindergarten for particular children. So if your school has a pre-K collaborative, then four-year-olds can start school. They can start pre-K for free in public school. I think the goal would be to to let that happen for all children. But the pre-K collaboratives have had marvelous outcome because the way they were set up, they put very high national standards on how those should operate. And I will tell you, one area in which Mississippi is a major standout is in those areas, in the pre Uh, the four-year-old kindergarten that's going on. And I'd love to hear from those of you out there who perhaps know of a child, a grandchild, or a niece or a nephew um, who has has dealt with one of those pre-K collaboratives. I'd love to hear from you because um, right now I am the grandmother of um, 11 children, grandchildren, And I wish that our public schools in the area in which they live had those pre-K collaboratives, and they did not. But what it does is for anybody, whether you can afford to go to private um, preschool or not, it allows everybody to join in those pre-K collaboratives. So, you know, I, I really do want to hear from you about your thoughts about that early brain development. And let me remind you, as we're talking through all this, when a child is going through that early brain growth, the reason this is so incredibly vital is if if early brain growth is happening and you have those adverse childhood experiences that I've mentioned – Um, emotional or physical neglect, um, abuse, um, violence in the home, 
parents who are significantly ill and unable to care for the child and all of that, when those occur, they interfere with that. So the sooner that we can intervene on taking care of these children, the sooner than we, that we can help out, the better off the child's outcome will be. Because it's been shown that early intervention is helpful for early brain development. And so why are we not doing a better job? Why are we not reaching more children early on? That's my question to you. Okay, this is this is really real talk. I want to hear from you. I want I have some possible solutions, but I want to hear what you are thinking. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and today we're talking about taking care of our young children. What kind of job do you think we're doing here in Mississippi? Or for those of you in Tennessee or Alabama, Louisiana, who I know listen to this show, how do you think you're doing in your state? I I will do a bit of a comparative. I know that Tennessee serves more children in in their state, more young children in what we call early intervention. Those are monies that come into the state. They're federal dollars that are matched by our state dollars. And um, at this point in time, Tennessee spends significantly more proportionately than Mississippi does on early intervention. And it does appear that their their um, general numbers and outcome appears to be somewhat better than in Mississippi. Now, I know Tennessee is different than Mississippi. Yes, there's more money and a larger population. But if you look at it from a population standpoint, a headcount per se, uh, proportionately, we are spending significantly more less money. So uh, I was heartened to hear Lieutenant Governor Hoseman talk about the fact that monies are being increased in pre-K collaboratives. Um, I think what we're hoping for is that more money will be spent in, in other areas of taking care of kids, right? Um, and so I, I really would like to hear from those of you out there. I'd like to hear from you about your thoughts, your experiences on on what you've tried to access and and how you have been affected, how you think you were affected as a child or how your child was affected from perhaps the lack of services or the need for services. You know, next, um, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm actually going to speak at these legislative hearings to talk about my experiences. And so I'd love to hear from you about your stories and perhaps your difficulties so that I can take that in. Um, Hearings are going on right now. And, you know, after the radio show, it might be good to to go and listen, you can you can Google um, Mississippi um, Senate hearings and and find that. But um, 
I, I would really like to hear about your experiences and your stories about trying to access services or not being able to as as we're going through the show. Um, you know, and our children aged uh, zero to three, we serve about 1.5% of our population. That means that we find and serve, our, our state uh, serves about 1.5% of our population. But we know that according to what's going on nationally, um, most states serve at least 3% and perhaps more. We also know that in Mississippi, children who live in poverty, who have food insecurity, who have single-parent households, who live in poverty, are at higher risk for emotional, social, and developmental needs. Yet, we serve fewer. Um, we, we know that in Mississippi, we have um, almost... 40% of our children um, of color who live in poverty, um, yet we're only serving a very small percentage. So underserving is for sure. The other thing that, that I want you to know is there are, and we've talked about this on the radio show before, um, there, there was, there is, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, James Heckman, a Nobel Prize winner, not in health and not in education, but in economics. And he um, compiled numerous studies from other individuals, too. They weren't all his studies. But he, he won a Nobel Prize for his work in the area of economics and, and investing in the economics and return on investment in investing in early childhood learning. And what he showed is something that I think we all know, is that the return on investment diminishes significantly. In fact, it, it's pretty much cut in half by the time a child enters first grade. So the the largest return on investment that one can make is investing in very early childhood education, those pre-K collaboratives, investing in very early intervention and taking care of children. It's been shown by an economist who is internationally known, and he's gone all over the world preaching this. And many countries listen to it. Many states have listened to it. And it sounds like our state is getting ready. Um, I'm, I'm very heartened, like I said, to, to, to say that that seems to be happening right now. So again, I'd love to hear your experiences so that I can take them. We've got open lines. Call us one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Perhaps um, what would be really nice is to hear from people who have worked in the area of early childcare, 
um, early childhood education, teachers, um, those who have struggled. Um, and to hear hear what you have to say and how you you feel like things perhaps need to change. I'd love to hear hear your stories. Um, we know that there there are two areas where we know we can make a difference, and that is to make sure that we have real, well-trained individuals who take care of young children. Um, but we also know that it's not just having well-trained individuals taking care of children, but also people being able to discover where those children are and make sure that that we are finding them so that we can care for them. Um, one thing I want to remind people about is the way you find them is through knowing normal developmental milestones. So what we call... Um, developmental milestones, there are these markers in early child development. Um, When a child talks, when a child walks, when a child um, relates to others, when a child understands directions, um, reaches points, can hold a crayon, and all of that, plays interactive games. There are milestones for almost everything out there. And if a child doesn't meet those milestones, if those markers aren't met, then there should be a red flag that someone should, that doesn't mean that there is an intellectual disability. That doesn't mean that there's a severe learning problem. Sometimes there can be, but sometimes it means there's something maybe minor going on, like a hearing loss, a mild hearing loss, maybe a mild visual deficit that has not been picked up on. Or could it be that there's a mother who is depressed and not interacting well with her child? Or could it be that perhaps there really is a motor deficit, um, some problems with the way a child is able to walk that needs to be intervened on. It could be anemia. There's so many things. So to do the developmental screening piece, to mark those developmental milestones, and, and then to find out whether or not there is something going on significant for intervention, then that's when you start, you pick up. So one thing that we've done in our state is to work with physicians across the state in having a very strong, robust developmental screening piece to take a look at children, to see how they're doing, to make sure that they're developing as they should. One thing that we found out is a lot of parents really didn't understand the value of that and and sometimes were afraid to have a developmental screener done because they they were afraid of finding out something. So what we know, though, is if you find out that something is there, it might not be a terrible thing. It might be something minor, and maybe we can get some help for that. 
Okay, we're going to jump to the phones. We have our first caller, Kat from Mobile, who has a uh, comment about teaching. Hi, Kat. Thanks for calling. Yes, ma'am. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Doing well. Good. Um, I was just listening to you all talk, and I was thinking about um, when I had my son, my five-year-old, um, he was five and a six-month-old, and with my five-year-old, um, you would kind of like get some books, you know, the various the, the little books that are hardback, baby-friendly, can be thrown across from and they won't tear up. <laughs> um, we uh, started getting him those when he was old enough to kind of play with toys and things just to get him used to books. And I think sometimes we doubt what children can learn and what they're absorbing. And I just personally, I feel like if kids can recognize Elmo, little baby, at a few months old, and things like that, if we introduce them to books, they'll feel familiar with it. It won't be so intimidating. It'll be something normal to them. And so that's just something that uh, we did with him. We started him out with those small books, and we started reading to him. And um, just playing, like, ABC videos. He did watch um, TV, certain educational things, so it was getting into him. Um, and luckily we had a really good, um, just really good teachers to support him at home daycares, and he was able to read by, like, two and three. Mm-hmm. Um so just familiarizing them with books. They play with toys. Let them get familiarized with books as well so it won't be so intimidating. If they can get familiar with YouTube, they can get familiar with books. And that's about all I have to say. Great points, Kat. Um, and I would love to hear from others who have comments exactly like that. Kat, I, I want to to just reiterate something you said. You're so soft-spoken. I hope everybody could hear you. Um, Kat's talking about handing books to very young children. And, um, and Kat, I don't know, did you just come up with that on your own, or was that something that someone else taught you? Um, that was just something that I came up with on my own. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm in my office and I'm pumping, so <laughs> you may not be able to hear me as clearly. Um, but that's just something that I came up with on my own because yeah. I, I often, I was often discouraged um, in things that I was doing with my child because he was so young. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would find videos about colors, learning your colors, but we were also doing in Spanish. And people would say, well, he's, he's not old enough, he won't understand. But other children in other countries are able to learn, and their brains are little sponges. And so if his brain is a sponge, I want him to absorb as much as he could within the first five years. Because if we're honest, it becomes a point where kids, it's not cool to learn. It's not really cool to get the best grades sometimes. And so if I can encourage him to love learning within those first five years, even if he gets to that point where it's not really cool anymore, I know what his capacity is, and he'll know it as well. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes wonderful sense. And you are actually quoting research that's all over the place. 
Kat, there is a program called Reach Out and Read, and and you may have heard of it. Many pediatricians um, around Mississippi, I know Alabama has many pediatricians who are part of the Reach Out and Read program, and it's a program where a book is incorporated in the well child checkup when a child, a young child under five, goes in for their checkup. So. Starting at at just months of age, the pediatrician goes in with an age appropriate book, like you said, a you know one of the cardboard books, the heavy cardboard books, and incorporates it into the physical exam. So they see how the child reaches for the book. Um, whether or not they pay attention when you're pointing to something, whether or not um, they can turn a page. So depending on their age, whatever developmental milestone is appropriate. So that that is something where sometimes children who live in poverty, that is the they that may be the only book that they receive um, as they move through their well child checkups but by the time they're five years of age they'll have several books that are appropriate i also want to tag on to something that you said about language and speaking in spanish to your child too and um working on uh dual or trial languages there is very good evidence that if you start very early um young children can can not only speak in another language, learn another language, but they think in it also. I speak a teeny bit of Spanish, but I have to think about how to interpret the word from English to Spanish. A a child who has a great command and who has learned more than one language when they are very young, under five, they can think in more than one language. Now, I don't know, um, listeners, how many of you have have traveled around. Um, We are one of the few countries where many people speak, the majority of people speak only one language. Um, In Europe, um, gosh, there are people who are fluent in three, four, five languages. But it's because they start when they're very young. Kat mentioned that little brains are like sponges, and they are. It is just amazing. So the sooner you start working on those brain connections and the pathways, the better off children are. Um, Kat, thanks for calling. You know, one thing that I will say, research has shown that um, during covid Children were read to, sung to, and um, talked to less, less um, than they were in previous years. And our Mississippi numbers showed that, too. So we need to start working on that. Cats in Mobile, Alabama has has done a, a, a really good job of increasing monies and and early childhood expenditures. So kudos to um, to Alabama. And hopefully Mississippi is going to be bringing that up too real soon. All right. Again, we're really talking about what we can do. I want to hear from you. 
I want to hear more from you about your experiences. What have you done for your children or your grandchildren? We need to hear ideas on what we can do as that village raising children, how we can take better care of them. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. This is Relatively Speaking, and we're talking about early brain development and the amazing things that are happening to a young child's brain. That birth to five period is just incredible. Over a million synapses, a million connections are happening every second. It's amazing. It is just amazing what is going on in that brain. We are losing time if we're not paying attention to this. We're losing future commodities if we're not paying attention to what's going on with our young children. So, you know, I think all of us struggled as parents of young children trying to figure out what the right thing to do was, whether or not our child was doing as well as they should have. Um, Jay, I know you're the parent of many. (laughs) (laughs) I have a quartet, yes. Yeah. And you have, I'm sure there were times when you wondered if your child was on track, whether or not things were going as they should. Wonder. Yeah. Went. <laughs> Wondering. Uh, are going. Yeah, 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 yeah. It it really does. I, I think we forget sometimes that that, you know, I, I heard somebody talking about this just recently that, you know, you have to have a license for just about everything, but not to have a child. And <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to read anything. To become a parent, right? That's, that's true. In fact, sometimes if you don't read anything, you become a parent when you don't exactly mean to. So I, I think that what we have to understand is, yes, it is the responsibilities of parents to raise their children, but sometimes parents need help, right? So listeners, I really would like to hear from you about who helped you. When you were a parent, what are, as your children were growing up, or did you feel lost? Did you have questions about whether or not your child was developing well? And did you not find out until they entered school? Because that is something that happens often, is that children enter school and are not ready to learn, and parents didn't realize that they were not on track and where they needed to be. So I'd like to hear those stories, too. You know, there was a um, survey that was done um, on kindergarten teachers several years ago here in Mississippi, and they surveyed kindergarten teachers about whether or not children, when children entered kindergarten, whether they were ready to learn. And according to the teachers surveyed, Um, Teachers said about 40% of children were not ready when they entered kindergarten. 40%. About 20% were at borderline. That is pretty terrifying that you have 40%, near 50% of children who are entering kindergarten not ready to learn. 
So we are doing our children a disservice. They are immediately starting off behind. And it's not because of their lack of intelligence. And I think there is some confusion about that. You know, we've talked about this on the show before, that, um, yes, genetics are important, but they're only a very small part of the story. Um, There's something called epigenetics, and that means, that term means that environment influences what your genes do. So we're born with a set of genes. Um, some some of the, the genes are already turned on. Some are turned off. Um, depending on what happens to you can make something turn on or turn off in the genetic makeup. Also, environment can enhance whatever you're born with, or it can take away from whatever you're born with. So the there's a lot of misinformation out there um, about whether or not people are capable. Um, sort of the same as... Um, if you are an individual who has never used building blocks, never been given a set of Legos to try to build, you're probably not going to be a very good the first time somebody hands you a set of Legos. The same thing is if you are someone who has never drawn before. Um, if somebody hands you a pencil and a piece of paper and says, draw X, there are very few individuals who can immediately do a beautiful job without having practiced, right? And so if you don't use the pathways, they don't get reinforced and they don't get developed. So to keep in mind, to offer the experiences, and as our first caller, Kat, talked about, to to make sure that you understand that those little brains, those early brains, are indeed like sponges and that they can absorb and learn so much more than we ever thought. So during that rapid brain growth is the most vital time for us to do something. So I'd like to encourage all of you to think about uh, talking to your legislator. Find out if you don't know who your legislator is, find out who they are and let them know um, how important you think this, this area of life is, if you do. And if you don't, I'd like to hear why, why you don't think that we need to take better care of our young children. You know, I'd like to hear from some teachers out there. Um, I know many teachers are working right now, but perhaps former teachers, teachers who have have experienced what what it sometimes takes to get children on track or um, to talk about their experiences in being able to light a fire. Um, you can probably tell that I feel very passionate about this. Um, you know, 
Miriam Wright Edelman said something um, many years ago that just rang so true to me. And um, she, she said, the question is not whether we can afford to invest in every child. It is whether we can afford not to. And if we only had everybody on the same page about that and understanding the need for that, I think our state would be much better off. So I'll tell you, you know, I've, I've told this story on air before, but I'll tell it again. Um, you know, I had, I had many times um, seen children who were neglected, um, children who were having areas of difficulty, and um, I dealt with them, uh, many children, and I, I uh, over the years, 30 years, um, have done many, many lectures also. And I'll never forget one time I had a young, um, I was doing a lecture. This was um, probably about five, six years ago. I was doing a lecture on the need to take care of others in the village and that all a child needs is just one person to really, really care about them and to take, to show an interest in them and let them know that they're loved and cared about. And I noticed I was doing a talk in a room full of social workers. Um, I was down on the Gulf Coast, and I noticed a young lady standing in the back of the room. And she was smiling at me. And as I finished up my lecture, my talk, um, she came up to the front of the room. And she said, hi, Dr. Buttress. You saw me when I was young. And, and I said, oh, I knew you looked familiar. I saw that sweet smile. And, um, and she said, I just wanted to tell you that I was going through some really tough times um, when you were seeing me. And I wanted to tell you, you were that one person who let me know that somebody cared about me. And she said, it wasn't my parents, and I didn't have a teacher at the time. Um, but it was that that one person who y- you were it, and you made me feel like I counted. And you were the reason that I went into social work, so I could be someone who let other people know that that they were cared for. And um, you can imagine what that did to me. It it literally made me cry. Um, and and I, she and I cried together, and I gave her a hug. And um, we caught up about what was going on with her in her life. And, and I asked her if she felt like she was able to make a difference now, and she said she was. She felt like she was making a difference. And so uh, I hope each and every one of you, one, if you have somebody who you felt like made a difference in your life, that you give them a call and let them know. Because I will tell you, that was several years ago, and that was one of the bright spots in my life. 
And um, and I've heard that from others before, and I'm not telling you this. So if you're listening and and you knew me and I made a difference, I'm not telling you to give me a call. I am telling you to think about who it was who supported you in your life, who helped you in that early period of your life and and made a difference for you so that you let them know and and a challenge to you to go forward and try to be that person who can can help a young child and you know it might not be it might not be in a mentoring way but it could be it might just mean go going going to a school and reading to a young child it might be finding out about where there are individuals in need and where you can help out but the major issue to remember is that it, it truly does take all of us to make sure that our young children have a good outcome. And the time is absolutely vital right now. Mississippi, uh, just a, a final story I will tell you. You know, we talk about Mississippi being on the bottom. Well, we are not on the bottom in every area. The work that I have done with this incredible team, the Mississippi Thrive Team, and with others, including many other groups in our state, have worked very hard on increasing the number of children who are screened for any kind of developmental and behavioral problem. When we started this work, Mississippi was on the very bottom, okay? We were last. We hear that a lot, right? That was five years ago. You know what happened? In the period of four and a half years with our Mississippi groups working together, not just Mississippi Thrive, but with many of our groups working together, we moved. We moved from last to 33rd. Okay. That's a lot of movement. We moved from screening. We we had an 86% improvement and our screening rate. We can do it, you guys. It's not because we are poor. It's not because we are the last in everything. It's because we just don't have the confidence. What Mississippi needs is develop the confidence that we can make changes because we are. We're making a difference, okay? So the way we make our best difference, in summary... (laughs) The way we make our very best difference is to make sure that we take care of our little ones, that we invest in them. And if you don't have little ones in your family, that's fine. Find out a way to help out. Be part of that village. Be part of that team to take over. Let your legislators know that this is what you want. We need to take care of our old, but we really need to work very hard to take care of our young so we won't have to spend as much money later on in the end, okay? So... I know I sounded a little preachy during this show, and and I just want to tell you that I probably did because I feel very passionate about it. So keep in mind that if you if you feel my passion, that you need to do something. It may just mean 
buy a book and give it to a child and read to that child. It may mean take a child to a library. It just may mean that you be that rocking grandmama in a nursery or in a child care center where you help take care of other children. Whatever it is, please do it. So I hope you'll listen to this podcast again or any past episodes. You can do that by downloading your favorite podcast app and searching Southern Remedy, Relatively Speaking. Um, This show is a production of MPB Think Radio. Jay White is my engineer. I hope you'll join us next week on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.